Okay, so last week we read the very first three verses of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one. And what we found out is that Nehemiah had received some bad news from Jerusalem, from one of his brothers. And what we saw that what this report carried was something that was very near and dear to his heart. What we get to look at this week is Nehemiah's response to that bad news. So we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to read, starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, I'm going to read 4 through 11, Nehemiah's prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We're going to start there. Let's ask this question as we unpack this text. Why is Nehemiah so upset? We briefly touched on that last week, but why? Why is he so upset to hear that Jerusalem is in ruins, that the walls and the gates are burned down, and that the people are in distress? He's a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. He's living high on the hog, cupbearer to the king, in a position of privilege. Why would he be so upset? I think it is because Nehemiah understood God's word. He understood God's big picture plan for his people. And so he understood that exile was not the final chapter of the story. See, exile was not the final chapter because Nehemiah understood that God's big picture plan included restoration and redemption. And so that moved him to pray. Let's look closely at this prayer. You guys did, if you did the workbook, you looked closely at this, at this prayer that he brought before God and unpacked it. What does it begin with? Well, the first thing that I see in Nehemiah's prayer, as we walk through first, just looking at the text, what does it say? And then what does it mean? It's, it shows us that Nehemiah's prayer was about God. Simply put, this prayer begins talking to God about God. And specifically, it begins with adoration. You hear him say, awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So Nehemiah knows the character of God. And knowing God's character is the avenue with which he is going to process this bad news that he received. So he starts his prayer tethered to who God is and who God is. 
what is the character of God. So bad news has come to Nehemiah, but God has not changed. He is tethered to the character of God. Secondly, we see that he prays in a way that puts himself and his people in their place. That's how I heard one teacher say it. It puts them in their place. When we start with prayer pointed at God, talking about who God is, coloring in who God is, then all of a sudden we're just automatically in our place. He starts with confession, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He includes himself and his father's household in that showing humility. You guys probably noticed that his prayer before God was full of both reverence and fear of God. We are going to see the fear of God in Nehemiah in every, every situation and every relationship he has in this book. Did you guys notice that this prayer has a lot more to do with covenant than circumstance? I love that when alliterations just pop out like that, right? Those C's. This prayer is a lot more to do with covenant than circumstance. What do I mean by covenant? It's one of those Christianese words that we throw out and maybe we assume that we understand it. But covenant, it's this binding agreement. It's a relationship between two sides. One person comes and says, here's my part of the deal. The other person responds and says, if I enter into this relationship, here's my end of the deal. Nehemiah's prayer had a lot more to do with God's covenant. He spoke of covenant more than circumstance. And it put him in his place. It put him and his people in a humble position before an awesome God. Nehemiah seemed to understand that the focus really shouldn't be about the circumstance because the real issues are rarely the circumstance that we see at first glance, right? Isn't there usually a whole nother level of heart issues and truth issues behind the circumstances that upset us. Nehemiah seemed to understand that the real issue was not just that a wall was broken down and that people were in shame. He puts God in his place, and then he was in his proper position. And then, and only then, does Nehemiah make a request of God, right? Well, don't we just see applications popping up all over this text? I mean, I could use teaching on prayer every month on how to pray appropriately. We've studied this, I think, in 1 John. We talked a lot about this, about what, how are we to pray? How should we approach prayer? An analogy that I will reuse, so sorry if, you, if I already thought I was funny when I shared it the first time. But think about, so I have three little boys. And how often do I hear them, mommy, 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 across the whole house, right? Mom, mom, I'm in the shower. Mom, mom, I'm, you know, I'm hiding in the closet because you want to stop doing this. Mom, mom, mom. And they're always calling out for me, calling out for me. Well, what would be ideal is when I finally am like, yes, dear. If they said, I just wanted to tell you that you're beautiful and, and you're so patient. And this covenant that I'm in with you as your beloved child I rest easy in that, Mom. <laughs> no, they never say that. It's like, Mom, 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 Mom. And then they have nothing to say of substance, right? My brother hit me, or I'm hungry, or ah, complaining, complaining, or whatever. 
Sometimes it is adorable things. I don't mean to sound negative. <laughs> how, how often is that us in prayer? Father God, Father God, Father God, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We blow right past telling him how great he is. We blow right past tethering our prayers to his character. How often do we go right past that second point of being grounded in who we are in light of God's goodness, holiness, faithfulness? We just jump right to that request. Please just provide for me. Please just move on my behalf. Please shame my enemies. Please give us a breakthrough. Give us direction. What are we supposed to do here? Does he want to hear those requests from us? Absolutely. He wants us to make requests of him. But I think that there's a better way that we can pray and we can learn it from Nehemiah. Another thing I see from this prayer is, I wonder if you guys would think about in the last week, look objectively at the things that upset you in this past week. Keep them to yourself for now. But it can be quite hilarious at times, right? I mean, I think about the things that have upset me in this past week. How upset I get when plans fall through or when um, somebody messes with my timeline. Maybe even just small, small scale things like hitting traffic or kids slowing me down from getting out the door on time. How often are we thrown into a tizzy because we are inconvenienced or merely annoyed? And how often are we moved to great emotion because of these inconveniences, because of these small trials? But what if what we could learn from chapter 1 is that first and foremost, let's be broken over the things of God. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't allow ourselves to feel sadness or grief when hard things come. But what if we set our trajectory to be broken over the things of God? Have you ever had a moment where perspective comes rushing in? I mean, my answer to that rhetorical question, things that upset me this week, is that there was a snow day and that messed with my schedule because my kids stayed home. I'm not joking, I stubbed my toe and it made me grouchy for an hour. There was one moment where I was frustrated and annoyed and inconvenienced because I don't know how to keep my floors clean when there's this much snow. Do you know what I heard the next hour after complaining about my floors? That the Stevenson baby was in open heart surgery and on life support. Talk about perspective, ladies. See, if we could take a cue from Nehemiah and set our hearts in a place where we are broken, first and foremost, over the things of God, I think what will happen is that every mountain will be leveled and every valley will be raised. You guys know that verse in Isaiah? It's one of my favorite verses. It's talking about Jesus, ultimately. It says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and rough places a plain. See, when our hearts can find their stability and who God is and what his covenant is, then those, those obstacles become a little bit more even, and then we can run hard after God with all the more ease. When we are broken over the things of God and his people, 
things tied to his big story, then when bad news does come, because it will, right? When, when we are inconvenienced, when we feel loss, what if we allow it to move us not just as far as our emotions, but what if it moved us into prayer as it did with Nehemiah? Nehemiah seems like an emotional dude. Guys, there are some, some chapters that show us that he is incredibly emotional. I'm excited about this. Feelers in the room, we will be validated this semester. <laughs> Nehemiah is a feeler. But he did not let the circumstance and the bad news move him only as far as emotion, but quickly moved him into prayer. So when you feel that loss or that stress or that anger, who do you cry out to? Who do you cry out to first? Is it to each other? To your mom on the phone? Or do you first cry out to God and throw that circumstance against the canvas of his character, of his faithfulness? Another little theme that we're going to see throughout this entire book that I'm excited about is that Nehemiah does not throw himself pity parties. And that convicts me. I throw a good party of pity for myself. Gene Boatman sent me this quote from Charles Stanley. I thought it fit well. As children of a sovereign God, we are never a victim of our circumstances. Isn't that a good promise for us? As children of a sovereign God, we are never a victim of our circumstances. Mere emotion or a pity party would have paralyzed Nehemiah in his response. But instead, he worked he got to work praying. So Nehemiah's prayer revealed his heart. Do you see that? Nehemiah's prayers revealed his heart as they do for us. And his heart was broken over the things of God. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Do you guys see that just as Nehemiah wept for the city of Jerusalem, four, five hundred years later, a better Nehemiah would do the same. Luke 19, chapter, chapter 19, verse 41 says, And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. Could it be that this picture of Nehemiah is pointing us forward to the New Testament? At the end of chapter 1, it says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah lives, or at least worked, inside the Persian palace. He was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That meant that he sat at the right hand of the king and he had to drink the king's cup to test it for poison. He was very trusted. He had quite a position of privilege. And he is going to make a bold request of this king, as you guys read. I'm going to read the first eight verses in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. 
Then I was very afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting behind him, I love that, the queen sitting beside him, the king totally had to ask her his, her opinion. That's what I see right there. How long will you be gone? It's like, he didn't know what to ask, so she's like, okay, get some details, dude, come on. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah makes a very bold request before God, a small detail that I would have overlooked without the help of people who have studied much longer than me. It says, in the month of Nisan, or however you say it. Guys, Nehemiah prayed for four months. He prayed for four months. And we just see it like that. We could just skip over that. What a picture of enduring, persevering prayer. And we see that he prayed for four months, and he had a plan ready. When the king asked him, okay, what's your plan? He didn't have to go back and then go start brainstorming and creating one. He had a plan ready to present to the king. We get to now look at this and ask the interpreta interpretation question. What, what does this mean? Well, I think that what we will see is that throughout this book, we will feel this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You guys ever thought about that? There is this attribute of God that he is sovereign, that he has rule, that he has control over everything that happens on earth and in our lives. But there is this need for us to be responsible and to be moved to action. And it's a tension. It's not like one of them is true and so the other one is null. No, there's a tension that we will feel as we unpack this narrative of the book of Nehemiah. I just read a good book called The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson about prayer. And he coined this perfectly. He said, we need to pray like it depends on God, but plan like it depends on you. I was a little against that at first. I was like, oh, that sounds wrong. That has to be wrong. But I see it in scripture. What if we prayed like it depended on God? Because it does. He's in sovereign control. And so we wear out our knees. Our knees go numb from how much we pray but then we act, we plan, we move out in faith as if it depends on us. So many of us like to sit in one camp, oh, I'm just a prayer, you know? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pray until something happens. And then some of us hang out in the other camp, no, I'm a doer, I'm gonna be bold. These two things can be married. In fact, they should be in our lives. Let's pray like it depends on God plan, act like it depends on us. And then when Nehemiah gets this favor from the king, what does he say? He says, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
he understands that it was the prayer. It was God who allowed this to happen. So what are some quick applications that we can add to for our applications for prayer? One would be to pray specifically. I think often we don't see our prayers answered because we don't have the faith to pray specifics for him. We don't pray specifics because maybe we fear that they won't get met and that that will just be too too disappointing. We'll go back to that prayer, emulate Nehemiah's prayer, and pray specifics tethered to God's character. Show, Show God your faith, even if it's just a mustard seed right now, by praying specifics. Pray names. Pray timelines. Pray for things that if God does not show up, it will not happen. Pray specifically. Pray with steadfastness. Four months of praying and grieving and fasting was how Nehemiah prepared for the job ahead of him. Are we women who pray with perseverance? Pray big and pray dangerously. And then plan for kingdom purposes. I think about what is it that keeps us from praying in these ways? How many of us say, oh, I'm just not disciplined. I just can't build a good prayer life. And I know that many of you did the whole 30. Many of you have done the whole 30 or something like it. You are disciplined women. We are. It's just what are we disciplined for, right? If we want something bad enough, we will make it happen. We are planners. Even if you're not type A, we are dreamers and planners. What is it that we're dreaming and planning about? Could we bring it in and let it be the things of God? Could it be that we start planning for kingdom purposes? Now, I don't mean just like in the event planning type of way, but what is it? What is this wall that God is calling us to work on? Is it your marriage, the one you're in now or the one in the future? How can you pray steadfastly? for your husband? Is it mothering? Let's plan. Make a a mission statement that is tied to the word of God. Execute. Make, Make an actual plan for how you plan to raise disciples. We set goals in all other areas of our life. Let's bring it into kingdom work. You go to a job five days a week, 40 hours a week, What's your plan there? Are you just going through the motions? Or could you bring in some discipline and some steadfast prayer and plan for kingdom purposes? That you'll have lunch with someone outside of your circle once a week. That you'll have an alarm go off on your phone every day where you intercede for the lost people in your life. Let's plan for kingdom purposes. The third part of our text showed Nehemiah in Jerusalem. So it says, um, and I'm just going to summarize this next bit of text starting in verse 9 through 20. Nehemiah makes this 1,000-mile trip from Susa to Jerusalem. And it's, it's a pretty cool scene if you really picture it. So he arrives there. Um, And he's gotten all this favor from the king. He's gotten everything that he needs to get his work started. And he arrives in Jerusalem and he stays there for three days. He gets up in the night and he takes just a couple men with him. He kept his mouth quiet 
which I struggle to do. If, God, if I'm excited about something that God's given me to do, I tell everybody. Nehemiah shows us some wisdom in this. He doesn't tell anyone what God had put into his heart to do for Jerusalem. And he goes out and he starts to inspect the walls. He starts to inspect Jerusalem. So picture this. It's, it's pitch dark and, and there's, there's no electricity. I mean, really picture pitch dark and he is inspecting rubble, right? And it gets to a point, it says, where he, it gets so bad, the mess is so vast that he can't even ride his animal through that rubble, through that wreckage, that debris. This is like such like a zombie movie scene. Like I picture it and it's like, where's Will Smith and like the zombies that were like doing that weird <laughs> freaky huddle thing in there. This was a dark night for Nehemiah, but he wanted to go and to see what exactly the mission was, what needed to be rebuilt. So we see him go and inspect the walls. And then pretty much the next thing that happens is that he goes back and he motivates the people that are living there, right? So these would be the people, mostly, who came back with Ezra and Zerubbabel, like we talked about last week. So Nehemiah comes and he motivates them. He casts vision. He probably created a hashtag. He gets this following. And what happens? The people rise up to do the work. They say in verse 18, let us rise up and build. In another study, it said, who wouldn't? want to jump in to God's promises coming to fruition. Remember, the whole reason Nehemiah is even doing this is because he understands that redemption and restoration is what comes next. They have been in exile, and God will bring redemption and restoration. So here he is. Of course, people are going to jump in as he casts this vision. Let us rise up and build, they say. So why was this even a possibility that the people would rise up and work? You think about that? Why was this even a possibility? It's a, it's a pretty simple answer. Well, because Nehemiah left Susa and came to Jerusalem. Simple enough. Well, do you see that Nehemiah left a palace to come to Jerusalem? You could say Nehemiah left his position of privilege and entered into the mess that rebellion had made. Do you guys see how Jesus did this as well? Do you see that Jesus left his heavenly palace to come to the mess that our sin had made? Jesus even left the right hand of God to restore what was broken. He came into messy, vulnerable human skin and gathered a remnant to be his church. Could it be that Nehemiah is hinting, is pointing toward the New Testament? towards Jesus' incarnation as they both left their right hand of the king to go and do the work of building God's people. But what happened next? We get a little bit of an introduction to the opposition that God's people will face. We will see this in many weeks coming. 
but this was just the preview. These two bad guys come and they start villainizing Nehemiah. They say, are you rebelling against the king? Starting to paint him as having impure motives. This is interesting because things have gone so well for Nehemiah. I mean, yeah, he had lived his whole life up to this point as a captive, as, as a slave in Persia, but he was at the right hand of the king. He was well-trusted. He did not lack any material things. He lived a life of privilege. And then all he had to do was ask the king, and the king gave him everything he wanted. He makes this thousand-mile trip, and it seems seamless. Everything is just going so well for our leader, our planner, Nehemiah. But then opposition comes. Why would God allow that? Why would God allow these bad guys to come and villainize and discourage so early on in the building process? Maybe you are asking the same question in your own life. Have you ever had dreams or hopes be halted by hardship or opposition, persecution? Have your hopes for something been deflated? Maybe you have prayed and prayed and prayed and you see Nehemiah's four months and you're like, no, I did that for years. I prayed, I sought God. I have this vision to build this life and this ministry and this marriage and this job for God's glory. I am building. I am excited. It is tethered to who God is. But then hardship comes. Sickness comes. You experience loss. Maybe at that moment, if you've been there before, if you're there now, or as you are just looking into Nehemiah's narrative, what we could all see is that at that moment, what we need to learn is that God is not just building a wall, but he was building the people's faith. What mattered way more than the bricks of that wall was got the people's faith. See, God, as you know, is so much more concerned not with what is seen, but with what is unseen. What what does this mean as, as we are, you know, in due process saying, okay, what is my wall? What am I building? What am I called to, to rise up and work on to be on mission for? I think it will vary across all of us, but I do think a consensus we have is that God is building our faith. So this is, this is way simplified, but from these scriptures, here's what I see as just some steps for those of you who love just to have um, some outlines, what we can learn on, on how God wants to build our faith is we need to anticipate that God wants to build our faith. Start there. What is it that you need to anticipate? What area of your heart, what part of your relationship with God is he inviting you to rise up and build? Are you anticipating that from God, that he wants to change the way your faith looks now so that a year from now you get to look back and say, oh my goodness, look what he's built in me. And then maybe he's calling you to prayer. So we anticipate God, and then we pray. We pray specifically. We pray daily. We pray constantly. And then we plan. 
We continue to pray, and then we plan, and then we keep a certain posture that keeps the cycle going. We find this posture where we actually sit metaphorically on the edge of life's seat, and we expect God's promises to come true. We need to put ourselves in a posture where we believe that it is time to move forward from the season of exile. What if Nehemiah had stayed in that praying position and was just like, no, our sins were too big. We should have another 70 years of exile. No, our guilt is too heavy. We haven't really paid for our rebellion. We don't deserve to go and start rebuilding. We don't deserve to have Jerusalem, the city of God, again. What if he had just stayed there feeling guilt and shame and paralyzed by that? Mm -hmm. Nehemiah was sitting on the edge of his seat in that palace, if you will, because he knew that exile was not the last chapter for God's people. <coughs> Ladies, whatever kind of exile we are in, we need to remember that God makes all things new. Exile does not get the last word in your life or in mine. There are seasons of life where we feel that more than others. We talked about this in last semester's study, the already not yet. Jesus has already come. We have received our salvation. He has made us new. We have the abundant life in him. But not yet have we fully been redeemed and restored. That will not happen until the other side, until Jesus comes back and he restores the new heavens and the new earth. There are days where we more feel the not yet than the already, right? When depression just won't let up, when there is doubt, when there is loneliness, when the road is way slower and way longer than we would prefer, when life feels like exile, we feel freshly east of Eden. Could you, by faith, change your posture to anticipate what God might have next for you? Pray, 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 and then jump when he gives you an opportunity to begin rebuilding and renewing. Look at where God has allowed some opposition to come your way and be comforted that he wants to build your faith more than anything else. Not that you may just know about him, but know him. As I said last week, Guys, Nehemiah is not a super leader that we are going to follow on Instagram, right? It's not his initiative that is just leaving us amazed. It's not his prayer life alone that should motivate us. There's a way bigger reason that we get to see even in chapter 2. It's that Nehemiah is a type of Christ. See, as we saw Nehemiah, the cupbearer, make a heartfelt request of the king. Do you recall when Jesus did this? Do you see Jesus doing the same when he was just outside the walls of Jerusalem? 
in Mark 14, it says, and going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And being in agony, anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Look at Jesus' prayer to God, our King. He was full of anguish, and he brings a huge request before God. His sorrow was so great, it was to the point of death. And we see that his prayer was tethered to who he believed God was. He did not approach him as a pawn to be moved, to make his life easier. But he approached him as the one true God who will do as he pleases. The difference between Nehemiah and Jesus in these scenes. We saw this week that, that Nehemiah got a yes from the king. Jesus got a no. God didn't answer Jesus' request with a yes. He bore the cup of God's wrath. And because of that, because that cup was not lifted from Jesus, we all receive a yes from God, as you heard in the sermon this morning. See, Jesus didn't just give up a position of privilege like Nehemiah did. He gave up his very life. Jesus received a no that you and I might receive a yes. Second Corinthians says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We said last week that the book of Nehemiah is about God bringing his children home. And the way home is through his promises that we have a yes in. That is good news for a room full of women. Let's pray.